Hello, I'm Jamie Sanchez, and I think my dog, my cat, my mouse want chicken bone. Sweet cakes, and welcome back to another episode of the Bebop Beat. Since we had Steve Conti on for the music of Bebop Part One, we've just had a lot of time to reflect on our favorite Bebop songs, and we've actually met some more contributors to the soundtrack of our favorite anime. This episode is mostly an interview episode where we're going to meet several people who worked on these iconic songs. So Jamie and I are going to talk for just a second so we can throw you to the interview as quickly as possible. The big news right now as we're recording this episode is that Watanabe, the director of Cowboy Bebop, has been hired on as a musical supervisor for the new anime Sonny Boy. Now, this is important in a couple of ways. One, Five of seven of his directorial anime works are music-centric. That includes Cowboy Bebop, Samurai Champloo, Kids on the Slope, Terra and Resonance, and Carol and Tuesday. He's also worked as a music producer with Sayo Yamamoto on two works. That's Michiko Tohachin and Loop on the Third, The Woman Called Fujiko Mine. Now, I've often wondered why him? Why is he the best person for this? Why would someone hire him in this capacity? And what does he bring to the table? And Lauren, given your perspective on anime and Kamui Bebop, what are your thoughts on this? I don't feel like I'm necessarily the most qualified to answer this question, but the feeling in my gut is that like, once you have a product that is as successful and known for its music as Cowboy Bebop, people might just think of you that way. So Cowboy Bebop, which we're going to discuss in this interview coming up, is pretty unique in that the music directly influenced how these scenes were drawn. And there were even episodes where dialogue was cut and altered to accommodate the music. And certainly, Watanabe was responsible for some of those choices. And I think he has a really great just read, like a a really great pulse on how music and the rest of an anime can tie together. I am a big fan of Carol and Tuesday, actually. It may have music as an even more forward part of its plot than Cowboy Bebop. So he obviously does have the chops. He's obviously good at this. It's not just lip service. I would agree with you on all those points. Um, I also wanted to bring attention to uh, one of our guests today has written a book on Cowboy Bebop soundtrack specifically. And one of the quotes from that book is, his treatment of music is very considered, and I feel he respects musicians. Sometimes he even seems to value the music over the story. This quote is directly from Kano herself, talking to the interviewers of the 33 and a Third series. Cowboy Bebop for sure encompasses all of that. We already know how much the soundtrack led the animation of the series. But it's really in my watching of a show called Terror and Resonance, that like my absolute love for the music and how it's treated, it just comes to a big culmination. It's like watching a perpetual music video. And then sometimes the characters are kind of weak or the plot doesn't really advance really well. But like this is still a nine in my book. It still has so much emotional impact, especially scenes like uh, the carousel where 
one of the main characters is trying to defuse a bomb. Just really slow, ethereal tension that I don't think you'd be able to get any other director to create without that general knowledge and passion for music. Anyway, I, that came up. It's been on news networks for a while. OdaQuest and ANN and all these other outlets are talking about it. So I felt it was important to at least touch on this subject briefly. For sure, for sure. I personally haven't been keeping up with the news as readily as you have. Those updates have kind of more been your job on the podcast. But I have been reflecting on the role of Cowboy Bebop music just in my personal life and I think the lives of fans everywhere. I obviously went off the rails just gushing last time about all of the college music nights that included Cowboy Bebop music. But even in smaller ways, it it comes up all the time. During the pandemic, my partner and I, we decided one of the things we were going to do was learn how to waltz. And my favorite song on our like waltz learning playlist was Waltz for ZZ. This music is in my head all the time. The, the first couple of lines to Adieu, I think they just live in my head rent free, which is really funny considering when we get into the interview, we're going to learn that just like Steve Conti, a lot of the musicians who worked on Bebop maybe weren't fans before, aren't necessarily fans since, but have had this immense influence on people for decades. It also surprised me in the course of doing research for this episode that to learn that Tank was not initially recorded to be Cowboy Bebop's opening song. And therefore, Yoko Kano only recorded two takes of it. So apparently it's littered with errors and issues that my non-musical ears can't tell. It wouldn't even come to me like, oh, that's an issue. I'm not a musician. But can we honestly imagine a different opening? Which other song in these seven plus other albums would have been the song, Lauren? It's it's obviously got to be Tank. We can't clean our brains of tank and imagine anything else. But oddly, I already said, what's up, sweetcakes? I think if I had to pick a different one, it would be Ask DNA. Like, I would love to start every episode with that. What's up? But it's tank, right? That's it. (laughs) I uh, I think Rush would be my choice if I had to pick one, which is so similar to tank in many ways. Like, I could have just said tank anyway. Speaking of Tank, uh, we got a fan letter a long time ago, like right after the Steve Conti episode, that I have just been hanging on to with the assumption that we would return to the music someday. I want to say hello and thank you for the letter to Saku Takoja, who wrote to us from Finland. He said he discovered our podcast and was hoping maybe we could play his cover of Tank. He says, quote, the cover is my way of giving something to the Cowboy Bebop and anime community as a whole. I've gathered heavyweight musicians from all across Finland and me on the drums to pull this cover off. I do not want to get our podcast like busted for copyright. I'm worried that if we put a bunch of Tank in here, we'll uh, get flagged somehow. So I will just make sure we link that cover on our Twitter and our Instagram, wherever you hang out with us online, so you could hear it. My favorite part is uh, the voice, the voiceover that comes in, because they go with slightly different dialogue than in the original Tank. I won't spoil it for you. I just find it very charming. 
Speaking of charming, another fan musician in my sphere is the artist known as Saeed, who has done a full Bebop-inspired album. You can actually purchase this on vinyl, too. Uh, and it was it always brings me such joy when I'm in my local coffee shop and they put on this particular vinyl. I'm like, yes, it's the Bebop one. Play that again. <laughs> Do you think that people in the coffee shops know that it's Bebop inspired or is it just a coincidence? Not at all. It's a very uh, lo-fi, chill, beats to study to type of album. Um, and the only thing that really makes it explicitly Bebop are the samples that are pulled from the show. So there is vocal dialogue interweaved throughout, but it's obvious that Saib has a love and passion for this music in a way that they want to make it their own. And that's what I really appreciate about this work. I definitely uh, have a growing vinyl collection and will go grab that if it's available anywhere because I need my lo-fi beats to hunt bounties too. Well, like I said, we have a huge set of guests ahead of us, and they gave us a lot of their time and generous uh, insight into their work on Bebop. So let's not make you wait any longer, and we'll toss it over to our time with Raj Ramaya, Scott Matthew, and Rose Bridges. For the music of Bebop Part 2, we have our largest room of guests ever. We are going to try something really unprecedented on the show here. We are honored by three creators, singers, songwriters, and so on involved with Cowboy Bebop. So let me introduce them to you. First, we have singer-songwriter Raj Ramaya. How you doing? We have singer-songwriter Scott Matthew. Hi, nice to be here. And a PhD candidate in musicology at the University of Texas at Austin, Rose Bridges. Hey, welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we talked about this off mic, but I would like to go around to everyone and give us a quick summary of how you either, in two of your cases, worked on Cowboy Bebop directly or in Rose's case, the work you did inspired by Cowboy Bebop. Let's start with Raj. Yes, so I, I actually lived in Japan half my life and um, knew Yoko Kano. I lived there for over 20 years. Uh, knew Yoko Kano from uh, session singing for TV commercials and writing with a lot of um, artists for Victor Entertainment, which was on that label. And then I ended up being signed to that label and then got involved with her and her crew at that time because they're looking for... Um, English-speaking singers and songwriters, lyricists, etc., of the Cabo Bebop project. And I just happened to be living in Tokyo at the time, so it was very convenient. Well, I was asked to sing on the Cowboy Bebop movie only. I did one song called Is It Real? And I didn't write it, of course. Uh, Yoko composed it. Um, and I guess I got the job by auditioning for Yoko. She was in New York and um, I was lucky enough to somehow get into the audition. My dear friend, Cherry, who um, I had a band and she um, was kind of the production liaison for Cherry in New York, uh, for Yoko in New York. 
and uh, she kind of snuck me into the audition because Yoko had heard my um, voice and sort of thought maybe it wasn't right for what she had envisioned. And um, but Cherry was pretty pretty sure that maybe I might be right for it and snuck me in. And I sang in the vocal booth for Yoko, and uh, and the rest is history. I was very lucky. And Rose. So uh, on Twitter in 2015, um, Noriko Manabe, who was the um, editor for the um, 33 and a third Japan series with Bloomsbury Press, approached me because she saw that I studied anime soundtracks about doing a book about a specific anime soundtrack that was really influential. And I said yes after talking with my advisor about it. Um, And obviously Cowboy Bebop seemed like the clear choice. It's one of my favorite anime. It's one of the most influential, if not the most influential anime soundtrack of all time. And so I spent the um, next couple of years of my life writing a um, book about it, doing lots of research, interviewing these two guys along with several other people, uh, including an email interview with um, Yoko Kano herself, which was more direct. The, the interview with um, Shinichiro Watanabe, my editor, conducted in um, Japan because she was there. And at the time I didn't speak any Japanese, so she needed to mediate that anyway. The, the email one was between the three of us and I sent in questions and my editor translated them and then Yoko Kano answered and they got translated back. Yeah, it was, and there's tons of research I had to do and everything from the history of jazz in Japan to, um, spaghetti Western films and their music just all, all over the place. And it was so much fun. Lots of work, but so much fun. So any of you can answer this. Uh, we're just so curious. Were each of you anime fans before Cowboy Bebop? Or was this your first anime experience? And are you anime fans to this day? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no exposure to anime at all um, prior to getting the gig. And I mean... Yeah, I haven't really delved into that world. It was such a buzz to be sort of immersed in that world a little bit and just to kind of understand it slightly about how passionate that whole scene is. It was cool. It was nice to be sort of like invited in inside a little bit. But no, I, I haven't really kind of seen a huge amount of anime. In fact, I haven't even seen Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> I was going to ask if you see Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> I saw the movie with my song in it. That's it. <laughs> uh, I hope you saw the movie for yeah. heaven's sake. <laughs> yeah, I did. I went to, they had a little premiere in New York and I went to that. Um, and it was super fun. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know what anime was when, when Yoko talked to me about it. Because at that time, I was living in Japan, as I said, and it really wasn't mainstream. So, I mean, I was even asking my friends, what is anime? And they really didn't know either. So it was, it was kind of very new. It was very fresh in the, in the late 90s, right? And so I think that a lot of people just didn't know enough to be fans. We just didn't understand what it was yet, really. And I remember the first concert with you. Uh, I think it should be, should be Axe, right? With you, Scott. It's like, yeah. like all the fans were there with their little plastic bags with the album, with the CD, and all the merchandise. And they all had their little plastic bags. Like everybody in the whole, in the whole you know, whatever auditorium had, had their little plastic bags. Not only of the Cowboy Bebop stuff, but I found it of other anime that they were showing each other uh, at the sh- after the show. They're all outside, you know, showing each other CD covers and things like that. So it, yeah, you're right. It's a very passionate and unique kind of culture that I've gotten to know better since then. <laughs> and I've seen the movie. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I definitely was an anime fan before I started writing this book. I mean, that was part of why I was chosen for it as I had been writing what anime music and to study it, study anything academically, you kind of have to be a fan of it already because you have to spend so much time with it that if you don't love it, you would go insane. In fact, even if you do love it, it kind of drives you insane after a while, just, you know, researching really in depth on one particular topic. I'd been an anime fan since the late 90s when I was a kid. So I hadn't actually watched Cowboy Bebop when it was airing in the U.S. for the first time on Adult Swim because I was a little young for that at the time. Um, but I was watching um, Pokemon, Digimon, Sailor Moon, all that stuff. Um, and then as a teenager and into my um, early 20s, I got more seriously into anime Um and Cowboy Bebop was one of the ones I think I first watched that was like more for adults. And that sort of convinced me of anime as a serious art form. And of course, I loved the soundtrack immediately. And so once I started pivoting to wanting to study that as my academic interest as a musicologist, um, it was an obvious one that I wanted to delve more into even before the book opportunity came up. But I'd been writing for Anime News Network for about a year before I got that um, book opportunity. So, uh, I mean, to write for an anime website, you kind of have to be a fan, despite what some people who are critical of your reviews think. It's like we don't get paid enough to justify it <laughs> if you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we all get yelled at and told we're not fans. Yeah. It's okay. It's just part of the job. Yep. So we've touched a bit on how impactful Cowboy Bebop has been towards the fandom. And now we're seeing a Netflix adaptation of it coming soon to a TV near you. So why do you think people still enjoy Cowboy Bebop in 2021? Why why are we compelled to have the real folk blues charity event and other things coming up the pipe? I was going to ask you that question, actually. So <laughs> what's going on? Why is it still popular 20 years later? And and we were so surprised when we did that charity uh, song. It went up to number, I think it was number six on Billboard. Do you know that, Scott? Hit number six on no, Billboard worldwide. Wow, that's cool. Number one, yeah, it was like crazy. And you know what? Nobody told us. We were all sitting with big beards, bigger than Scott's beard. I had a Scott bigger beard. We were all sitting in our little home studios working on this track with Mason. We released it. We wanted to raise some money for uh, Doctors Up Borders. And, and, um, and then it just kept getting bigger and snowballing. And, but nobody told us this. We were all like in our little, little studios, still like you know, drinking beer and talking to each other online. No one knew what was going on. And then I found out in the summer by accident, someone emailed me and they just said, did you know that that song's number six on Billboard Worldwide. And I thought, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, I was on the Rick and Morty podcast a few weeks, about a couple of months ago, and they loved it. So I ended up on that podcast with them. And, uh, and I was just like, you know, I, I don't know. You tell me, why is it still popular? Maybe Rose knows the answer to that, because it's surprising. She definitely would. <laughs> I know why I still like it. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's one of those anime, I feel like, at least people around my age, I'm 31, like most, a lot of us have grown up with it to a certain degree. Um, people my age up to like a little bit older, you know, and like I meet people who are into science fiction who um, don't watch anime otherwise. Like I'm, you know, I have lots of friends who are in, in the Star Trek fandom and they, I talk about that I do anime and they immediately, their mind goes to Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. So it's, it's had this really big reach outside of just anime. And I think a lot of that's because a lot of it appeals to western audiences more so than a lot of other anime um it's just this very like you know sleek stylish 
sci-fi um, show, a sci-fi Western-ish. It's kind of hard to define the genre of Cowboy Bebop, which I think is part of what makes it so great. And I think the soundtrack is a big part of that. So I'm very happy that Yoko Kano is going to come back for the soundtrack for the live action. Cause I was like, that was making or breaking whether I was going to bother with the live action. I was like, is she writing the music? Okay. Then I'm here for it. If not, no, not going to be the same. I mean, it's not going to be the same anyway, but too different, but yeah, I think it's just, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. Cause I am someone who really likes anime and I watch a lot of anime that people who only really watch who like it, but, but it, it's just, it's something that comes up all the time. Even before I mentioned, like when I just say that I study anime music, people say Cowboy Bebop. And I'm like, yeah, I wrote a book about that. Oh my gosh. So it, it's just, it just had really big staying power. Um, I think one thing I get into in the book is that I think that for all it's like very stylish and cool. I think it's also very meaningful, the, the story and the characters and they stay with you. And I think that that isn't really brought up enough about Cowboy Bebop specifically. And I think like, that's why it stays with people. Like you see it because it's cool. It stays with you because it means something to you. I must watch it. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I heard there's this podcast that goes through every episode one by one. So maybe <laughs> while you watch it, you can listen to that podcast. I don't know Very much about it. Good though. idea. <laughs> but also, like I, I still meet kids that have just been turned onto it, and um, so it seems to be kind of like getting a new generation, you know, of audience at the moment. I don't know why, but um, but kids love it still. Discovering it on streaming, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What do you think of live the live act? I mean, you haven't seen it, obviously, but I mean, so many fans react badly to live action versions of anime, including me. So it's like it's you know it's it's hard. It's kind of hard. I don't know making the transition for me personally. It it I, I haven't found one yet that really works for me, um, and I always wonder why they keep you know kind of going for it <laughs> when most of the fandom kind of uh, correct me if I'm wrong most of the fandom kind of rejects it right but what do you guys think now do you think this is uh, is something changed now I mean Yoko's involved that's fantastic but once again when you translate from anime to live action it's no longer anime right of course obviously so what is it is it just is it, is, it, is it something that you think anime fans will transition to what's your sort of guess on this or your prediction I think Cowboy Bebop is a better choice for it than a lot of other anime that I've had that because I don't think it's as obviously cartoony and it's really similar in some ways to a lot of like um, other popular sci-fi TV shows. And so I, I think I, I am hopeful. I am not like I'm cautiously optimistic because, yeah, I haven't seen it, any of these anime live act action adaptations work and i would have thought death note was a really good choice for a live action adaptation but it was not i mean i mean i think i still think there is a good adaptation of it potentially out there i was okay with the japanese tv one that came, that i had to review for anime news network i and i think there's a potentially good u.s version of death note out there but that was not the one that showed up on netflix <laughs> but like i i think i think a lot of it's the choice of you know projects like there was never going to be a good live action dragon ball z because that kind of anime just does not adapt well. But I think Cowboy Bebop could, depending on the choices that they make. But we did get a pretty good live action Battle Angel Alita. That is true. That's that's the one exception. There's a whole fan base that loves that. Yeah. They're really rabid about it. But it wasn't really completely live action though, right? It was part CG. Yeah. It was mostly CG. Yeah. Mostly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and okay. One other question I have for you too is, 
I am, I've almost stopped watching Netflix because it sucks so badly. And I'm not, it's only my opinion. It's just getting, it's tanking big time. And I only watch, I watch Apple. I can tell you, I watch HBO Max, Apple Plus. I'll watch Crunchyroll and a few other things. And, and because I can't, I just can't handle Netflix anymore. I think I overloaded it during the lockdown. I don't know. What do you think of Netflix interpreting anime? That's my question. I feel like Netflix is one of the only properties I can think of that has the budget to do this and has the reputation to do this. They have their whole Netflix geeked social media um, persona that has been really active, especially in the weeks leading up to this episode. They had Geeked Week. So they're aligned to do it in the sense that They've kind of cornered the market on like geek reputation. They're really trying to be the people to do it. But I don't think they've put out a live action anime adaptation that I've enjoyed yet. Yeah. I'm just really, uh-huh. I'm trying to not let the past affect my hopes for the future. You go with that. You go with that. <laughs> <laughs> what do we, what do we think this many decades later? So we know Yoko Kano is involved with this project in a big, big way. What do you think the soundtrack for this should sound like? If if we had to give our wish list, would you like it to sound exactly like what you guys did? Or do you think it should maybe be modernized a little bit? I have no idea. I, you know, really, I, do, I have no idea what she's going to do even with it. It could be completely something. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a tough job, right? To sort of. I don't know. Are the seatbelts involved? I don't know. We don't know. I mean, I think it should be kind of similar. It's a winning, it's a kind mm-hmm. of a winning formula. I don't know if it needs to be modernized as such, you know. We were joking on the podcast a couple weeks ago that maybe this will all just become dubstep. <laughs> and then we heard Yoko was involved and we're like, oh, that's not going to happen yeah. anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what's going to happen now? You know, it's like there hasn't been much information about it, really. So I don't know. Rose, what do you think? I think I'd like it to be similar, but like still have some new stuff in it. So, but like similar in style, at least to the original. I think that's what everybody wants who'd be watching this anyway. So we keep throwing around the name Yoko Kano. I would love to hear from each of you who met her. How were you put in touch with her and how did you get this gig? Because I know Raj lived in Japan, so I get the feeling your journeys were a little bit different. Uh, for me, yeah, her, her, um, one of her crew came in, I was playing at a cafe, uh, in, <laughs> I was playing acoustic guitar and singing at a cafe in Tokyo and she came in and she just said, Hey, we're doing this anime soundtrack. Do you want to, want to come and sing? And I, again, I didn't know any, what she was talking about. So I just said, are you going to pay me? And I said, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> you know, so that was really it. You know, I was super stoked whenever I got job. I, I was, you know, working musician and still am and in Japan at that time. So every gig was important. And, and this is a chance to work with, you know, um, a pretty, she did, as she said, a very major production. So I was very, very just, you know, the right place at the right time. And, and then I, I did the same thing like, uh, um, like Scott, I, I auditioned for several songs on, on the soundtrack and ended up getting what I got, right. And writing lyrics for a few other tracks and, and, but it was a great experience, you know, really. Um, and it's, to me, it's been, um, it's been a real stepping stone, actually, into a lot, a lot of other gigs that have come from that. It's been amazing, especially in Japan. Once you work with Yoko Kano, you kind of like, you've got, you got, you're, you got, you've been verified. It's like being verified on, 
on YouTube, right? Your reel or, uh, or on Spotify. And then suddenly people are like, hey, you know, and then they start calling you, right? I'm sure something's happened to you, Scott, right? You got other opportunities, right? Yeah, I mean, it kind of legitimizes, um, you know, your abilities and uh, people start to take notice. I mean, for me, I was lucky because I only did that one song for Cowboy Bebop, but then Yoko um, wrote me a whole bunch of songs for Ghost in the Shell. And that was kind of a bigger deal for me as far as like volume of work that was given to me. Um, it was strange because then I went on to do a soundtrack for a film called Short Bus. And then that was kind of the thing that really opened a lot of doors for me um, as well. So my whole early sort of beginning and being legitimized <laughs> um, was through soundtracks. But yeah, Yoko, the, the, the Cowboy Bebop song was the very first song I was uh, paid professionally to, to sing. And it was a huge deal for me. I was just like, I remember having a bit of a cry after I left the studio. Like, you know, you've been sort of struggling and, and trying to have the faith in, in what you do. And then, then all of a sudden, wow, you're singing on a, on a, like a legitimate soundtrack with wonderful, talented people. And it just felt really huge. It was a huge moment for me. Scott saying, is it real on the Cowboy Bebop movie soundtrack? And that's just such a perfect title for the story you just told. Is it yeah, real? Yeah. <laughs> too true. Yeah, it's quite symbolic, isn't it, really? And it's a very moving performance, too. I, I wouldn't have known that this was a, a first real like paid gig for you if you hadn't said that just now. Um, because it sounds very alive. And it, every time I hear it, it feels like there's wisdom behind it. <laughs> and wisdom beyond years. <laughs> Well, I had been trying to be kind of like a professional, I guess a professional, don't really like that word, but, you know, a legitimate singer um, for many, many years before that. I was out and about trying to, you know, hock my wares. Um, so, yeah, it literally just was the first time that someone paid attention to me. <laughs> well, it's a very powerful song, so thank you for recording it. Oh, it was really my pleasure. You mentioned the audition. What was that like? Well, it was odd. Like I had said before that Yoko had sort of originally kind of um, said that I wasn't right and she didn't want me to come into the audition. But, <laughs> but my friend Cherry was kind of uh, a little gawly and sort of snuck me in at the end and said, oh, look, Scott's here. I know you sort of said perhaps you didn't want to hear him. And since I was there, you know... She was very gracious and let me sing. And uh, lo and behold, she uh, kind of liked what I did and, um, and then, wrote, then wrote me, is it real? I didn't have the song to audition with. She, I guess she sort of wrote it around my vocal styling or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. She's been known to do that. We, we come up against this time and time again where the talent actually informs the song and then the song informs the scene in the show. Uh, and that is not a traditional way to compose anime music. Maybe, Rose, you could tell us a little bit more about that. In terms of how well it fits with like typical ways anime music is produced and not. Yeah, um, so it is actually pretty common for anime music to come sort of like relatively early in the anime production process, which is a thing that makes it really different from how a lot of things are done over here, where music is often the last aspect of film, at least film production. I'm a little less familiar with um, domestic TV production, but I mean, 
TV and film are increasingly merging in that regard anyway. So it does usually come early in anime production process because anime like episodes are usually done right up to the last minute. So you need the music done at a time because that's not really a thing you can last minute in the same way that you can, you know, last minute, you know, fixing the um, script or the animation or something. But, but I think Cowboy Bebop was unique in that um Yoko Kano ended up having a lot of sway over the final product outside of the music because basically she got the um, sort of order that the production team sent her of like, you know, write this for this scene, write this for this scene. And she kind of just threw that out and did her own thing. And she also wrote three times the amount of music that they were budgeted to do. Um, and so they had, and they wanted to use a lot of it. So they had to really restructure the anime um, and make really big changes to the script and stuff to accommodate it. Like I know for episode five, Ballad of Fallen Angels, I think I bring this up in the book. There was supposed to be a lot more dialogue in the confrontation between Spike and Vicious in the church. And Watanabe said in the interview for my book that they cut that because they wanted to feature the music. That was a case where the music ended up really influencing what many people consider one of the most powerful scenes in the anime. So it was a good choice. I think it was. Yeah. So, so it was, it was influential also in a um, sense of anime being a thing that, where music could be a big way that it made back its budget in merchandising. Um, there's actually a really good academic article I read that's entirely about that in a, in an, I forget the like specific title, but it's in a volume called drawn to sound animation, film music and sonicity. Um, and so they, there's a whole article just on how Cowboy Bebop influenced how anime music is sold because it had to make back that enormous music budget, which it did successfully. Um, and that was actually a big key to people making other anime that, you know, we can make a ton of money on selling CDs and concerts. There is an audience for this sort of thing for anime music. Um, who will buy up all this stuff, uh, which wasn't a thing that was as much a part of the merchant merch sales before that. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's cool. as, especially the part where you mentioned that uh, Kano wrote three times as much the music mm. than she was actually given license to do. Uh, Raj, did you have a similar encounter like Scott? Did, did Kano write new songs for you? I think so. I mean, she she sent me demo. Well, not really for me, but she sent me multiple demos for different songs, which I made I demoed for, and ended up getting you know asked DNA on on the on the soundtrack. Uh, but you know, I write lyrics for other songs for her too, and so it was kind of back and forth. I don't think it was as specific as writing a song just for me. I think that I was just somebody that was demoing for different songs as opposed to Scott having that great opportunity. And I think the same thing happened with Steve Conti too. I remember that she wrote songs specifically for Steve's voice. Cause I just talked with him a few weeks ago and he said the same thing. She wrote something. Uh, and then apparently the animators animated to some of the songs that she created. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's really um, unusual. I've worked on a few animes in the past couple of years too. Um, and some new animes, and and that wasn't <laughs> wasn't exactly like that. But I mean, it was like, Rose is correct. You know, they're writing lots of loops too, creating loops, pre-made loops that the animators were kind of animating to, and as BGM loops, right? Really, basically, to a large degree, like a game. Like game game music is loops as well, a lot of loops and things like that. Not so much as writing to each movement in the picture, like a film and TV score or something like that. Yeah, I feel like on both sides of the Pacific ocean, there's more of that move toward 
sort of stuff they can reuse a lot, like loops in film music, not necessarily like a light motif, but just like something that works as like background music for a lot. And I think anime in particular does that because for one, anime has a lot of like repetitive sequences, like especially when you think of something like Sailor Moon, where they have to transform every episode. So they need the same music for that. And one of the things that always struck me about Cowboy Bebop is how rarely it reuses music. And if it does, it uses it often in a totally different context from um, how it was used before. And it's not because the episodes don't have sometimes formulaic aspects of them. I mean, generally, they're, they are all very individual, but there's still, they're still moments where, like, you know, the cruise chases down a bad guy. You know, Spike gets in a big kung fu fight with the bad guy at the end. So there is a formula to some of these episodes, but the music never really follows that formula. It's always fresh. Um, and if they reuse something, it's usually in a different context from how it was used before. Raj, thank you so much for shouting out Steve Conti. Uh, I heard you on the podcast, How Did This Get Played? And when they were talking about your work on Cowboy Bebop, I went, gosh, I just have to get him on our show. And I saw that you two had done a Q&A, like a talk back. And so after Steve had been on our Bebop Music Part 1 episode, I reached out to him on Twitter and I said, Steve, tell Raj we're legit. Vouch for us. <laughs> and so it's nice to hear that you guys talk all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know what? I want to, now that I'm seeing Scott again, I want to work with Scott again and Steve and everybody. So I'm going to be calling you, Scott, for a gig pretty soon. I got some, some projects coming up and I was just thinking, this is great. I've been reconnecting with a lot of people that I, I haven't heard from in a long time and we're working. I, I have our own production company in, in California and a studio here and we, we work on lots of stuff and and it's just like wow this this has become this big renaissance of like cowboy bebop <laughs> so I think it's time it's time to do things with a lot of the original singers and we were talking to Steve about that as well to put some new some have those singers featured again I think there's there's a lot of people that would love to hear you on another soundtrack or something Scott oh well, I'm into for it. sure right. Right. yep <laughs> Hit me up. Yeah, I mean, I can't. We were trying to figure out the last time we saw each other, maybe twenty years ago. We, I can't quite figure it out. But it was that wonderful show we did at um, at the stadium just outside of Tokyo. What was that called? Was it Saitama? I can't, I can't remember. remember. It's, yeah, I'm I'm losing my memory too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was that. It was the retrospective of Yoko's kind of career. Right. Um, right. It was wild, and I remember I was uh, catapulted on a like a hydraulic from under the stage <laughs> up on top of the to the top of the stage, and there was some video footage. It wasn't released, thank God. But I was. I just looked horrified. <laughs> I was like, I'd never performed in front of so many people. And uh, I knew the kind of like the gravity uh, of that moment uh, because they're such, you know, rapid fans. It was a, uh, but it was wild. It was wonderful. It was a good trip. I think in my interview with you, you were the one who compared like your first time performing Cowboy Bebop stuff to like Beatlemania. It might have been you. It might have been Steve, but I feel like it felt like that. I remember being chased in the subway. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was you guys were together, so it was one of you that told me that. Steve and I were together when we were chased. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good moment. Whether we're talking singing, songwriting, or writing a book, did any of you encounter any particular challenges while working for Cowboy Bebop? I, in particular, didn't. I found it really um, 
it was kind of a breeze, actually. I mean, th- I've, I felt nervous um, because it was my first kind of real gig. But um, Yoko, super sweet, super kind, um, really easy to work with, wonderful direction. I mean, for me, it was sort of like the perfect job, really. And uh, without the pressure of having to write anything. <laughs> um, so that was nice. But like having the ability to interpret, you know, her vision felt really natural in a way. I, I feel the same way as you. Like it was just, it all just came together so smoothly and beautifully. And I remember the one thing that did surprise me is that we finished, we'd finish the show and then the rest of us would out, be out in a restaurant eating and drinking. She would say, I'm going back to the studio to work. <laughs> right? And I was like, wow, that's why things go so smoothly because this woman never stops working. And I remember her, um, her um, representative saying that she's like, you know, two or three people, her work, the amount of, content that she creates and how hard she works is just 24 7 just working and working and working so she's i think that's why this might be that's why things went so smoothly because she was she knew what she was doing and she was so amazing at it you know that it kind of i was like wow that's someone to look up to right in terms of you know you know what your ideals should be in terms of you know being a a writer or producer or whatever it is a composer so We've encountered a number of instances where fans have said, you know, Yoko Kano is this powerhouse. She's churned out lots of music, but perhaps her music isn't as unique as we think it is. And on the podcast, we've gone back and forth and discussed how Cowboy Bebop is ultimately an homage to 60s, 70s, and 80s film. And the music very much takes a beat in that vein. However, there is the occasional post online that says Yoko Kano is a plagiarist. You know, this isn't truly her, all from her imagination. And we want to know what you think on that. Is it more homage or is there something a little bit, you know, offbeat about this? Well, you saw my really snarky Twitter thread about that. Um, I, yeah, my feeling is I think that's people not understanding what music plagiarism is. That, you know, you can't, like music plagiarism is like, the case where like George Harrison in the song, my sweet Lord ended up using like basically the same melody as the chiffons. He's so fine. And that's a case where he got successfully sued for that. And like, if you listen to the two songs, it's really obvious. You can't copyright chords. Otherwise everybody who writes music would be screwed. I mean, literally like, so I was a composition major in undergrad and oftentimes I would be like, I kind of want this to sound like this. Uh, so let's look at this score that I have of this piece. I want this to sound like, and let's see what kind of harmonies he's using. And I'll use, you know, that kind of harmony, but, you know, differently with, you know, different instruments or something. So like everybody, that's not plagiarism because there are only so many chords. And I think that's usually what people are responding to is like, it's like, I feel like I, I saw the accusation that Diggin from the movie was um, plagiarized from um, 19th Nervous Breakdown by the Rolling Stones. It's just like, it's just because it's the same, similar chord progression, but you can't copyright that. And that's how it sounds like that genre. I'm sorry, this, st- this stuff is very <laughs> vexing to me. And I have to teach it to my students too, when they ask me about that kind of stuff. There's definite influences and references. There, there were yeah. reference songs, I can tell you that for sure. There were reference songs like this song is we're mm-hmm. looking for a Beck vibe or, you know, or um, the verve, the verve came up. Right. And I, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are, of course is references, but that's normal. That's just normal stuff. And you're absolutely correct. Right. 
uh, you can't copyright a progression of chords. It's, it's the chords and it's melody and lyrics and everything together. They come together. I mean, look at, um, there's lots of good examples of it, but um, the Tom Petty song and the Sam Smith song, It Won't Back Down. There's just tons of examples out there where it's identical. But this is more like she's being influenced because Japanese are heavily influenced by foreign by British and American music. That's just the reality. Jazz is not a, 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 a Japanese um, a style of music. It's right. It's been influenced American music that's been, that they've interpreted. So, you know, it's, it's interpretations, I think, right? Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. Great and fantastic interpretations of different genres, right? So. Yeah, and I mean, I think the fact that people are accusing it of that is showing that they pick up on those interpretations, that she's doing a good job. That, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, this song really does sound like a Rolling Stones song, enough that we think it was, but it wasn't. It's just she's very good at mimicking them. Yeah, and that really is, in my mind, from living there for so long, that is what the Japanese do best, because they took Hanna-Barbera, Disney cartoons, refined it, and sold it back to us as anime, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I had an argument with the Japanese guy in a, in a curry restaurant because I have Indian roots. And he claimed that kare was a Japanese thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, my no. mom could hear this. She'd kill you. Oh, but, no. but it was not curry. It was kare, like their style. Right. They made it their own, you know. And so it was, it's interesting because I, I tell people that too with cars, right? Cars are invented in the U.S., but brought to Japan, refined, and, you know, we're... I sure know that as a Detroit native. There, yeah, there you go. Like, I mean, you know, everything, it's just Japan refines things and brings it back to us in a in nice, in almost a nicer way, actually, a better a better quality way, right? In some in some instances, right? It's just, they, they just know how to imp improve things in a way, in, in a subtle way. Yeah, they make cars better than we do. Don't tell anyone in my hometown I said that. It's <laughs> true. Now, at least, it's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd like to think we settled the score here on the podcast for other listeners and other fans. Uh, you heard it here, folks. Yoko Kano is just really in love with all kinds of music and does a really great job at homage and imitating and packaging it all for anime production. Raj, you were mentioning genre. You said the word jazz, and jazz is the magic word in terms of Cowboy Bebop music fans. There was a meme going around pretty recently. It was like a fake news story from The Onion or one of those sites. And it was like, man realizes he doesn't like jazz. He just likes Cowboy Bebop. So uh, do we, as a group, do we think the music in Cowboy Bebop is jazz? Or do we think it's something else or something more? I think, yeah. I mean, I have my own interpretation of it because... Jazz is a very American music, right? And it, it was founded in the U.S. and developed by African-Americans. It's, it's, it, that's my interpretation of jazz. And so, but Japanese jazz is post-World War II jazz. Not all of it, actually. Right. Yeah, you're right. Not all of it. But a large, to a large degree, these jazz cafes or kisatens uh, came out into Japan post-World War II. And a lot of, um, you know, American servicemen brought their jazz albums. They really you know, influence the culture there to a large degree. So I, I think that it's there. The jazz in Japan is very Japanese jazz, right? It's, it's like a, it's a new breed of jazz where because it's so integral to a lot of their songwriting, like for a lot of pop artists, like listen to any pop music out there. It's super jazz influenced in Japan, right? Just the chordal structures, the melodies. Everything very jazz influenced, R&B and jazz influenced, whereas in the U.S., you know, three chords, 
and we've got a song here, <laughs> right? But, you know, it's very, they love the, the complicated jazz structures. And I, so I think they've made it their own, right? Their own, their own breed, like, like curry, right? They've made their curry. Jazz is their own curry, right? So they have their own, their own, um, own style, right, of, of jazz as well. Yeah. J-jazz. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the stuff on the soundtrack is, some of it isn't. Um, I think the jazz stuff is the stuff that people remember the best because, you know, it's used in the theme song and in a lot of the action scenes. And it's, yeah, it's like a specific kind of jazz. Like Japanese jazz always, it always feels like very 60s, like very like John Coltrane mm-hmm. um, the type of stuff. Yeah. And I think that was when, like, because even though jazz in Japan, like dates back to like the 20s, which was something I was surprised to learn when I was doing the research for this book um that wow jazz arrived in japan around the same time it arrived in some parts of the u.s it was there pretty early but like a lot i think when it took off was in the 60s which another show that yoko kano worked on kids on the slope does a good job of portraying and i i it was it was interesting because a lot of the like jazz artists that like my high school jazz band had played um that i thought had been lesser known like art blakely who i don't think is as well known outside of like people who are super into jazz were referenced in Kids on the Slope. And I was like, wow, these people in Japan like are super into jazz. And I think it's it's like you said, Raj, there's just this really strong interest in it in Japan that reflects itself in Cowboy Bebop. But like I hear a lot of people here like describe the soundtrack sometimes as having kind of like a James Bond-ish vibe. I think it's that I think it's that sixties jazz thing about it. Yeah, totally. And you're right, it's not all jazz. I mean, there's just some certain tracks and some cues that are jazzy, but but yeah, you're right. It's a mixture of, I think it's a mixture of rock and jazz, really. Rock, pop, and jazz. Well, that makes sense. We know through other interviews and information that's out there that Yoko Kano was influenced by New York musicians, uh, a very specific trip to New Orleans. We're curious if uh, you know any more of her influences that maybe she discussed with you. And what are some of your favorite genres or artists that maybe inspire your own work? I, you know, Yoko's a mystery. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with her and being in the studio with her and, and some social events, but I've never sort of asked her a lot of personal questions or anything about her tastes. I've just sort of, you know, gathered that from, from work and stuff like that. But me, I mean, I can speak for myself and, you know, nowadays it's like, I, there's just too much out there. There's so much cool stuff out there that I almost can't sort of tell you what is influencing me because there's so much influencing me out there in, in, in the, in the ether. Um, I used to be a huge rock fan back in the nineties. Now I'm getting more into electronica and world music and listening to great anime soundtracks too. You know, this amazing um, flying Lotus is working on the new anime soundtrack for uh, Yasuke and which is fantastic. That's going to be, I love flying Lotus as well. So there's a lot of really cool sort of fusion artists out there. And I, I think that, for me personally, living in Japan for so long, I just absorbed that fusion taste because that's what they do a lot of, fuse everything together. And so just the straight up rock almost sounds a little bit flat to me now. I need a little, a little bit more, you know, I need something a little bit weird in there, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it can, my, my tastes have been, I hope, I hope evolving into something better. And I'm um, working on lots of projects where I'm trying to bring that into, into the fold. And work with you know cool, interesting people with very diverse backgrounds. Raj, I believe you worked on remixes. Is that correct? Yeah, um, remixes. Uh, I've been working with um, some of the Attack on Titan people on different tracks for some games. Um, I've been working with Kevin Pinkin on 
Made in Abyss, and then I finished working with him with Tower of God uh, a few months back, which came out on Crunchyroll. And then we've got a couple of other anime right now where we've been, I can't say anything yet, that we've been working on, uh, some stop motion stuff. So there's been some, you know, fun kind of stuff happening, you know, and um, trying to keep that connection with Japan, even though we can't get in the country. You know, we're like, like what? <laughs> Who's going to the Olympics? <laughs> I think the answer is no one. <laughs> It's like nobody, it's gonna be like an empty stadium or something. I don't know what's happening, but um, yeah, I mean, I've been keeping busy and 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 you know, trying to you know, stay keep my finger in the anime world too because it's fun without the conventions happening. You know, it's like, um, I'm just trying to figure out what's next. Um, you know, hopefully, some conventions are opening up again, um, right? And I think that the the, the community is eager to get back to to um, to seeing each other and getting out there and. Scott, have you been over here to the to North America for the conventions at all? I've never done a convention. I've oh never even God. considered doing one. I, <laughs> just, should I do one? How do I do one? You should. Let's let's fix that. Let's get you over for a convention, man. Come hang out in California. We get the biggest ones here, I think, right? The Anime Expo. I haven't been to Anime Expo yet. It's like on my bucket list. Hmm. Dude, we should we should do one for sure. We should have you over here for a convention. That sounds fun. Yeah, I'd love to check it out. Do some do some singing at a convention. They they go bananas for that cowboy bebop stuff at conventions for sure. So it'd be it'd be it'd be a fun to get all. I'd love personally. I'd love to get all the singers together and do a little you know acoustic show or something like that. That would be fun. Get Steve there as well. Yeah, yeah. Get a bunch okay. of, we, won't have, we won't have you like you know coming out of anything and like. Oh please yeah. don't make me pop out <laughs> on the hydraulics or anything. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just have, we'll have probably one light, you know, and the acoustic will be it. <laughs> Perfect. That's my comfort zone. You have to draw straws, draw straws to see who gets shot out of the ground in a hydraulic this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Something like that. Um, are there any people you would like to give a shout out to as like maybe the unsung heroes of anime music creation or because we hear a lot about the vocalist on a song or like the composer of a song but this world is full of editors and lots of people have their hands on the product so who maybe are the unsung heroes you've worked with uh, on Cowboy Bebop or otherwise I didn't I didn't meet anyone apart from Yoko and there was an engineer in the room when I recorded as well but I yeah I didn't kind of get immersed in anything but just singing in the moment in the studio there was one lady that that I knew that got me involved, and her name was Miss Inoue at um, Victor Entertainment way back when, and she sort of was the only English speaker, and, and sort of um, the go-between, like Cherry in New York was for um, for Scott. Yeah, right, exactly. And uh, she deserves some applause for all her hard work. There's a lot. There's a lot of women involved, actually. There's a lot of women. It's a whole team of women that that pulled this whole thing together. That were behind the scenes, you know. So yeah. And then um, the president of, of Victor Entertainment at the time, uh, Sasaki, Mr. Sasaki, was amazing, cool, super cool guy, you know, and, you know, all these great people. Yeah, there's been a, a, the lyricist, Tim, Tim, right? And, and a lot of other people, Chris Mosdell, who I still keep in touch with, who's, uh, I don't think Cowboy Bebop, but sorry, Tim was on Cowboy Bebop, but Chris was on uh, Ghost in the Shell with you and some other productions. So I think there's a lot of, you know, really cool, interesting people, the engineers, I mean, um, and the, of course, the seatbelts that no one ever talks about, right? The amazing musicians in the seatbelts. We should give them a round of applause for sure for being so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. They're incredible. 
Yeah. I was going to say with regard to the seatbelts, um, the composer for Trigun, Suneo Imahori, it was, is a member of the seatbelts. So if you like their music and you want to hear something different, you should watch Trigun anyway, because it's really good. And it's another space Western. So similar vein to Cowboy Bebop, except a lot heavier on the Western, a lot more cartoonish. I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. And it has a really great score. I've worked with Imahori on, on other projects, on, on a few different games. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just can't remember the name of them right now. Gungrave. Gungrave. Oh, yeah. Gungrave and like I think two or three different games I've worked with him on. And he's amazing. Really cool guy. But I just I found out it was just weird because I was walking out to go to the studio and he <laughs> I literally ran into him on the street. We're like neighbors in the same area in Tokyo. Like I just saw him, I saw him right ahead of me. I was like, what is it? The studio is far away, but we just like lived on the same, I think we we're lived on the same block or something in Tokyo. And it's like this one area where all the musicians live, Yoko, and lots of people all live in. <laughs> one area called Setagayaku and you just run into everybody all the time hanging out. Tokyo is not as big as everybody thinks. It's like there are these certain areas where everybody is, right? And then and all the everybody else is in Saitama, <laughs> out in the suburbs, right? Special thanks to Josh over at Strawberry Hill Music. When I reached out to uh, get in touch with Raj, he was actually who helped us meet the rest of you. So I'm told Raj, you can tell us a little bit more about Strawberry Hill. Yeah, we are a uh, audio post-production studio in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, we do a lot of music, uh, voiceover and sound design for film, TV, games, and animation. And uh, yeah, we've been here for about five years now. It's been cool, very cool. We work with some new Chinese uh, productions and some Japanese productions. So keep our foot in the door there. And of course, with some American productions as well. And if you're in the area, we do these fantastic parties. It's like we're next to wine, wine country, so we have these wine and cheese parties. Scott's going to get absolutely smashed when he gets over here because I'm going to have so much wine around. He's going to come visit and work with me, and he's going to – it's just amazing. There's just wineries all over the place, so people come up. We have a lot of voice actors that come up and, and, and work with us here. They do workshops as well for people on how to get into the voice acting industry. So it's, uh, it, We're out of the way, but it's, it's a cozy, cool little place to come to. So if you're in the area – in Northern California, um, drop by on Friday night. You'll find me there uncorking a bottle of wine. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of place. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's go around the circle and everybody let us know if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or just see more of your work. Let us know where you'd like to be found, what you're working on, and anything else you'd like to say to the Bebop fans. Well, okay. Um all my stuff is unfortunately on Spotify, which I still think is the devil. Um, but I, I couldn't, yes. I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't, there was no way around it anymore. And uh, so Spotify, you can also, you know, buy my stuff on Apple or wherever you download music or buy music. And actually, strangely enough, when the pandemic happened, I kind of took a step back from music. I know a lot of musicians and people were super inspired by I just found it so horrifying. (laughs) And coupled with like the political climate and everything was just so overwhelming. And I'm like, I'm going to just take a huge break from music. Um, So that's what I've been doing. But um, there was a tour booked in Europe for 2020 that was postponed till um, 2020. 
21. And that's happening now, I guess. So I'll be in Europe in um, uh, end of September through October doing shows. Um, yeah, um, you can find me on um, Instagram or Facebook and same as Scott. Um, my music, unfortunately, is on Spotify. <laughs> There's no way around that. Uh, they need to start paying us for our music, right? They're just like taking advantage of artists. Sorry, you can edit that out if you want to. But, you know, it's at least the music's out there for everybody to get. So you can just join me on. on. I'm old, so I'd use Facebook still. You know, it's kind of a, it's like this weird thing where only people over a certain age group use face, Facebook these days. But I still use it. Uh, and I still use Instagram to some degree. Um, and I would love to hear from you guys and everybody out there. And, and um Keep in touch for sure. I am on Twitter at Compose Rose. Um, but if, if you want to um, see my thoughts on anime, music, and many, many, many other things, you can you know follow me there. Um, I have a book, 33 and a Third Japan, Yoko Kano's Cowboy Bebop soundtrack, which is part of a series from Bloomsbury Press on um, notable works of Japanese popular music, part of a larger series. And just 33 and a Third is a series of books that basically analyze a specific album um, and they've since expanded it to um, global. So there's a Japan series, a Brazil series, various other ones. It's So that's what my book is. It's short and I think it's pretty good. Um, I also, and I do talk to these guys in there as well. Although one thing I was, I was kind of worried about when I was finishing the book is I didn't use as much of the interviews with you guys or anyone else as I had hoped to. And I was like, I hope that they don't like they aren't disappointed when they open this book and see there there's only like a line or two quoting them or something. Not at all. <laughs> no, okay. thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're welcome. It was really it was a really great experience for me. I'm working on a chapter for a edited volume on um, anime music that's coming from uh, Palgrave, um, and my chapter is going to focus on stuff of the last 25 years or so that involved composer director collaboration so it'll talk about cowboy bebop to the extent that i can without self-plagiarizing and then i have an article out from in one of the most recent mechademia which is a, a journal of um japanese popular culture with a great name i think and they have a issue out on soundscapes that came out this past spring and i have an article in there on the music of the anime of the director Kunihiko Ikuhara, who did Revolutionary Girl Uchina, some seasons of Sailor Moon. So I sort of walk through how he uses music in his anime, and that was really fun to do. Those are really helpful resources, and I'm so glad you're doing the Lord's work, Rose. Thank you, because yeah, it is really, really hard to find sources on this stuff, as I think there's something we were talking about before. There's just, I'm one of like very few people in the world writing about anime music, and that's already part of a not particularly big group of people writing academically about anime period. And so it's just not, it's, it's like my friends who are studying Beethoven have this big list of like resources they can, you know, reach out to. And I'm just like, my bibliographies are like, yeah, I kind of have to cite a blog. I know it's not a reliable source, but that's the only person on the internet who's written about this. <laughs> Without getting too into the weeds, I'd like to thank all three of you for joining us today. Uh, this was a really insightful interview. It's really great to have, you know, stories straight from the individuals who were part of those experiences. And thank you for sharing it with fellow Cowboy Bebop fans. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. We'll uh, see you at a convention or maybe at a party in California. You weren't, in, you weren't inviting us, but I've invited myself. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
you for joining us this week. Next time, we talk Mushroom Samba with PhD in neuroscience, Austin Lim. His education is about psychedelics, and we can't wait for his expertise, because I've never touched anything like that, I swear. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beep. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bebop Beat. Our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. Special thanks this episode to Josh Goring of Strawberry Hill Music. Cool, 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 cool. Thanks. It's Friday, my dudes.